Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. In the seven months since he took up residence in the White House, Donald Trump's presidency has lurched from crisis to crisis. His failure to persuade Republicans in Congress to agree on a bill to replace Obamacare has left his legislative agenda stuck on first base. The White House itself appears to be in perpetual chaos, as underlined by the successive dismissals or resignations of key personnel. And the ongoing investigation into alleged ties between the Trump election campaign team and the Kremlin has left the threat of impeachment hanging in the air. And that's just a small flavour of the controversies that have bedeviled this presidency. We know what the political commentators have made of all this, but what of the great American public, and in particular those who voted to put Trump in the White House in the first place? Are they sorry now? Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent, has taken to the road to find out. Her series of articles, Coast to Coast, Travels in Trump's America, is currently running on irishtimes.com. I'm joined now by Suzanne Lynch. Suzanne, where are you calling from today? Um, Well, I have just finished up here in Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, I spent a day or two in this state just beside Mississippi, across the Mississippi River uh, from Tennessee into Little Rock. Um, It's made famous, of course, by Bill Clinton, who was uh, the governor here and then became U.S. president. He's from a little town called Hope, Arkansas, which I I drove past, a very, very small town, uh, about two hours south of the capital, Little Rock, Arkansas. And uh, and no doubt in, in, we'll get your impressions from there in, in the coming days as you continue your, your series of articles. You began your journey by heading south from D.C. to Virginia and on to North Carolina. And you remarked mm. in your first article that in the series that just two hours out of D.C., the political life of Washington seems a world away. Does that sum up how disconnected many Americans feel from the political process? Yes, one thing I've really noticed, Chris, on this trip um, is the number of people who keep saying, you know, Washington is, is so different, that they say, oh, the politicians in Washington don't understand what's happening on the ground here, etc. And there's a couple of things. Obviously, that happens in every country. It happens in, in Ireland. It happens in, in Britain when we saw that disconnect between a lot of people, particularly in rural areas and, and the London metropolis and the Brexit vote. Um, in America, it's exacerbated, if you like, by the fact of, of, of size, of the sheer uh, the tyranny of the size of the country, if you like, that people are geographically so far from Washington in so many areas. Uh, but also, I think, the power of the states. And this is something that I think we forget about America. You've got this constant tension between the federal, the government level, and then uh, the states, which have quite a lot of power, um, both at state level and then at city level or county level. Now, North Carolina it was a good place to start because in some ways it's a microcosm of a divided United States, isn't it? It's a fascinating state. It's kind of... It's a real place of margins, of borders. It's where, um, you know, north meets south, um, kind of geographically, if you like, and and theoretically. Um, it, it's in the south, but it's still got a foothold in the, in the north. It's not too far from D.C., maybe about five or six hours drive. It's a very, very big state. And, and just before I, I started this trip, I was at an event in Washington where one of the uh, the congressmen for the state, Mark Meadows, a Republican, and he's a member of the Free Freedom Caucus, so so pretty much on the right to the Republican Party, he was describing his state to an audience in Washington. He said, oh, there are five types of barbecue in my region alone. And there was a laugh. But I think he did capture the sense of diversity within the state. Um, like a lot of places in America, uh, there is, I think, a growing kind of rural-urban divide. So towards the east of North Carolina, you've... Um, quite a kind of a liberal feel, quite a middle-class feel, mainly built up around the universities. You've got the Duke University, 
and the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and a very big research centre there that's really generated a kind of a middle class, um, a, a kind of a, a pretty well, pretty well at heel, but really more of kind of an intellectual centre. And then as you move further west, um, you start getting into uh, more of a working class areas um, and uh, running through the entire state is this division, this racial division. It's an interesting state because it's pretty much, it's called, called what they're called, they call here a purple state. So it flips between, a swing state essentially flips, flips between Republican and Democrat votes. Um, a lot of that is overlaid, if you like, on race. Um, so you've got a, a, a black population that votes overwhelmingly uh, for Democrats. And North Carolina, people will remember also, has found itself at the heart of a number of national debates they were the state where the bathroom ban, uh, the bill that prohibited transgender people from using the bathrooms to which they felt aligned, uh, that that took place in this state. And now there's a very, very interesting, quite technical, but extremely significant case about gerrymandering that's playing out here. This has been a huge issue in this state, whereby um, essentially Republicans have try to gerrymander the voting districts uh, to suit themselves. So even though this is a pretty even state in terms of Republicans and Democrats, Republicans are overwhelmingly represented in Congress. Yeah, they hold 10 um, of the 13 seats in Congress, you mentioned. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, people would be familiar with this, I suppose, from Northern Ireland um, before the 60s. But this issue of gerrymandering, I'm finding, is a huge issue for people. Um, and also voting ID. So North Carolina had introduced a number of voting ID measures to to many people may sound innocent. Um, They changed some of the rules around early voting. They changed some of the rules around what kind of ID you could bring to the polls. But uh, the court, uh, the Fourth Circuit Court intervened and said that actually these measures were being used with surgical precision, they said, to target the African-American community. That essentially um, these voter ID measures were were being brought in to suppress the the black vote. So, for example, um, and it's happening in other states, uh, Texas is one of them, um, there's been many, Wisconsin is another. Uh, So for one example would be that uh, it prohibited certain IDs and not others. Uh, so, for example, it, 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 in one state, they said you have to bring your driving license. But a lot of uh, more African-American people didn't have a driving license than white people. So that's an example of how these very innocent looking uh, measures may actually be designed to suppress certain parts of the vote. And some people I spoke to, some academics were saying, you know, this is part of a broader historical trend, I suppose, in America, where the suppression of the black vote was there 100 years ago. And that essentially it is still happening, albeit in a very, very different form and and more subtle form today. I found that amazing. And actually, I was listening to a programme on BBC Radio 4 the other day or on a podcast with Melvin Bragg in in our time. And they were discussing about 100 years ago, the measures that were used to disenfranchise the black population, Mm. not overtly disenfranchise them, but, um, you know, as producing certain sort of requirements that were geared towards Mm. facilitating white voters. And I was amazed to read in your piece that that, you know, was still happening uh, in in North Carolina and in the US today. Yeah, and I think it's going to be a huge issue in the midterm elections this year. And um, over my time living in America, America, I've seen this issue come up again and again. It's covered in the media here. People are very, very aware of it. And a lot of courts are weighing in on this. Um, So I think, you know, as I say, um, I think people are very aware of it. There's also been suggestions, and we don't know yet, that maybe this might be something that... Barack Obama may tackle, that this could be his legacy issue, if you like. Um, One of the interesting things I I spoke about in that piece was that kind of ambivalent relationship between uh, Obama and many people in the black community 
particularly Black Lives Matter, who feel he didn't quite do enough for the black vote um, for black people for their for their issues. Um, and I did speak to some people who suggested that this is something that they're hoping that Barack Obama and Michelle maybe tackle this issue of voting, of voting rights and uh, this disenfranchisement of, of, of the black vote. Now, while you were in North Carolina, you, you stopped off at a town called Hickory and you had a conversation there with four workers who were on a cigarette break from a, a, a job they were doing renovating the local school. And that turned into a very interesting experience, didn't it? Can you tell us about um, that conversation? Yes, this is just a small town in North Carolina. So it's approaching, once you drive west of North Carolina, the next state is Tennessee. So it's becoming more and more rural, although the roads are, are pretty good, really. All the roads have been on so far in America, despite all the talk about infrastructure uh, needs. But I stopped off at this town called Hickory, and a Trump campaigned there uh, during the election campaign. Um, it, it's whiter, it's more working class. Um, when I went to this town, it was pretty quiet. Like a lot of towns in America, the downtown areas, they call it, are pretty deserted a lot of the time. And most of the time when I when I go to towns, I realize, you know what, you need to go to the malls or the outdoor part of the town sometimes because the center can be pretty, pretty isolated. But Hickory is a very, very nice town, very small, picturesque. Um, and I stopped off. I kind of was a, a bit lost. And I stopped outside, which was a local primary school, and there was work going on there. So I parked and I started talking to these four guys, um, three of whom were white and one of whom was Hispanic. And I hadn't really planned to ask them about their political views, but we started talking and um, the there was kind of a, a very interesting dynamic in the group. There was an older white man who was kind of, uh, you know, the, the leader, if you like, and he began talking to me um, and gradually the other three pitched in. But I was asking them what they thought of the state of the country. And um, one of them, the younger white guy um, who was smoking, he was saying to me that he, I was asking him about Trump and they, he said, He's okay. He he likes what he's doing, but he said, um, the minimum wage is a big issue for for them. That in North Carolina hasn't increased in a while, and he was one of the people who said to me, you know, they don't understand what's going on here. Um, and this was they as as the conversation went on, they got more open. But the Hispanic guy uh, began to really open up, and if you like, as the conversation went on, he became more and more emboldened, and he said about how he was from Honduras. And how a lot of, as he said, Trump, the way he was treating his people, he put it, he wasn't happy about. And he described um, how he had come to the country 11 years ago. He said he was legal. He had a green card, but he had never bothered applying for citizenship. Um, But this year he did after 11 years because he was very fearful about um, the the Trump administration. But as he went on, the other three went quiet and they, they were looking on the ground and it just became very tense and it became very obvious to me that the other three were not happy with what he was saying. You know, that as he was talking more and more about how awful it was, the way Trump was clamping down immigration, they didn't agree with that and they didn't want to say it, but they didn't agree. And I I, I got this feeling that these four people very rarely talk about politics because they're coming from very different perspectives. And this guy from Honduras was so articulate. He found amazing English. A lot of the immigrants here I met don't necessarily, particularly as you get further south, don't necessarily have great English. This guy was absolutely perfect in English. Um, and then he talked about how some of his other uh, friends had been picked up from factories, had to go in and uh, check into Charleston, North Carolina, with the authorities. And basically painted this picture of a climate of fear now, that people in his community were, were, were scared. But it was a very interesting interchange. Um, I'm finding that some people 
are, particularly as I go further south, some very proud Republicans are very, very proud to talk about Trump. They want to get it out there. They feel that the, the fake news, they say, have misrepresented them. Um, but in, in states like North Carolina, it was a little bit more tense. People were less likely to come out and say they, uh, they supported Trump. Uh, than others as I went further on into the country. Right, yeah. So the solidarity between the four seemed to break down really once he got onto the immigration issue and he started exactly. Trump. And, exactly. And, and um, from there anyway, you were over the Great Smoky Mountains to, to Tennessee and you landed up in a very pretty town called Dandridge. T- tell us something about Dandridge. What kind of a place is it? Yeah, so Dandridge is kind of a picture-perfect town um, in in the in eastern Tennessee, again, pretty, very deserted, however, it's got a very strong Irish. The first person I met was meeting a, was wearing a Scots-Irish uh, T-shirt and explained to me that there's a festival there every September. So it's extremely white, actually. That's one of the um, the features of, of Tennessee and eastern Tennessee. This was all settled by uh, the Scots-Irish, which really means the, the Ulster, people from Ulster in the in the 18th, 19th century, 18th, late 18th century, 19th century. So a big Irish kind of descent there in that area. Um, but it's one of the areas of East Tennessee uh, that voted overwhelmingly for Trump. And it's extremely economically disadvantaged. When you look behind this kind of pretty facade, uh, actually, as soon as I started talking to people and meeting people, I spent a, a whole day there, um, a very different picture emerged. And it's one of, of working class discontent, if you like. Um, there is very little industry in the area. Uh, the nearest big town is Knoxville, Tennessee, which is about three hours east of Nashville. Um, it's very, very isolated. Um, and overwhelmingly, the people I met there spoke uh, about how they had voted for Trump. But I suppose one thing I'm learning on this trip is that it's very easy for outsiders to judge people. And we do have to remember that 63 million people voted for President Trump. Um, these, this was a, was a group who did. Um, I spoke to a very, very interesting woman, Susan Rice, and her daughter, uh, and they, she she was really articulate. She described how she voted for Trump. She was a Republican voter. And one of her main issues was health care. She said that her and her husband worked, they're self-employed, and that their premiums under Obamacare had soared. I would like some changes in health care. I wasn't pleased with um, the changes that Obama made in health care when he put all of that into play. Um, my husband and I's cost of healthcare went up. We're, we're that base of people that pay in and are healthy, but we got a significant uh, hit when it came to our cost. It, it increased uh, quite a bit. We, we, can't, we can't carry everybody all of the time. It, it's hard because what will happen is you end up having a lot of people that go, well, I guess I don't have to do anything. And then you've got a few people who are still going, I'm going to work and pay for this. And, and those people can't carry the majority. So, Suzanne, was that was that view from Susan Rice, was that kind of typical of the kind of view you, you, you found in talking to residents of that town? Yes, absolutely. I mean, they like Susan was saying also that, you know, I said, well, what about some of the comments Trump has made. Is he not offensive? Is he going to follow through? But again and again, people said, well, at least he, he's, he's trying to do something, that he's shaking things up. A lot of people I have met overwhelmingly have said about how he is a businessman and how they like that, how he's something different um, and how uh, they like that, the fact he's going to get things done. And this is linking in with this idea of being frustrated with the political status quo 
and the Washington scene, that this man um, is is prepared to kind of roll up his sleeves and get something done. And I really found that in Tennessee. Um, I mean, what didn't come up, but was maybe was maybe there was a few people in this town of Dandridge said they really did not like Obama. Now I tried to probe them on that. Um, and they were not that forthcoming. It could be a racial issue. This is a very, very white area, uh, virtually, you know, very, very, the statistics are there. Um, and you see that in some pockets of, of rural areas in this country. Um, but the, the, their their love for Trump, if you like, um, is matched by, um, by a, a disdain for Obama and, of course, Hillary Clinton, which is coming up again and again with people I speak to. Um, but there is this sense that, uh, that Trump is listening to them. I spoke to another girl, um, Kim, who was working in a bank uh, in Dandridge or nearby, and she was from Kentucky, which is bordering Tennessee, and she said she moved down recently. Again, she, she liked Trump. She was 38 years of age because she said her stepfather works in the coal mines. He lost his job last year, um, but he had got a new job. So she said that was a big issue for her, her community, and they were 100% behind Trump. At least he's listening. He sees it as a problem. And, of course, the coal exports have gone up probably for other reasons in the last few months. So so she was quite happy with that. Uh, but overwhelmingly, uh, there was uh, a Trump vote there. The only people I spoke to who had voted Democrat were people, were business owners. There were a lot of antique shops, cute little boutiques um, that were run by some people who had, who had come to the area from other uh, places. They said they had voted for, for Clinton, a couple of those people, but they said they were pretty much the only people they knew in that area who had Right. And you, you mentioned Dandridge, was a, you described it as a picture postcard town, but it's not without its serious social problems, or at least it's in an, it's in an area which has its serious social problems. Um, mm. Yeah, one of the issues that, that's facing this town and a lot of towns around America is this opioid addiction crisis. Um, opioids are basically painkillers, uh, pain relief, uh, prescribed drugs uh, that is becoming, a lot of people are comparing it to the crack epidemic in the 1980s. And even the AIDS epidemic here—it's—it's it's a huge issue for America. Um, it's a drug of uh, addiction that is legally prescribed, but people get hooked on it. So it may be as simple as somebody gets an opioid prescription for a car crash or back pain, and then they end up getting hooked on this drug. Um, and this again, living in America, this is getting huge traction international or nationally. Excuse me. Um, there are a lot of there's now a lot of media coverage about this issue. It's ravaging a lot of communities, in particular states like West Virginia, Tennessee. Um, Trump has set up an opioid task force and has appointed Chris Christie, Chris Christie, the governor of New Jersey, to lead that. Um, funding for opioid addiction came up as a huge uh, controversial issue in the healthcare debate recently, and was one of the reasons it failed because some states wanted to ensure that funding for opioid addiction services was protected when the Medicaid program was cut. So it really is becoming a huge issue here. Now, one thing I, I didn't write about, but I think is an interesting aspect is that a lot of people uh, have said, well, one of the reasons it's getting so much attention, that's essentially a white a white drug, it seems to be. It's, it's hitting white, uh, particularly working class areas. And really back in the 80s, when um, a lot of the black communities, particularly in cities like New York, uh, that was seen as a crime issue. When they were involved with, with drugs, with, with crack addiction, that was seen as crime. Now, because it's a white drug, if you like, it's seen as, oh, this is an addiction issue that has to be helped with money and social work, which is an aside, but quite an interesting uh, uh, topic of conversation. But um, a lot of people I've spoken to, and I've done other work on this during the year when I visited Pennsylvania, lots of people I knew knew somebody who had opioid uh, addiction problems. Um, now, what's interesting about Dandridge, I spoke to a lawyer from Nashville. 
he is um, representing a number of, of district attorneys in the state, in, right beside Dandridge, who are essentially bringing a law case against uh, pharmaceutical companies. Um, that there's a whole issue, and uh, there's a general issue in America about overprescription of drugs. It's a lot more medicalized as a society. Um, and that I spoke to also a doctor from the Tennessee Health Board who said one of the problems was that it was this all became an issue in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and opioid uh, drugs were marketed as a, an easy, you know, easy way to deal with pain uh, without being addictive, whereas in fact this was false. So I think there's a growing movement to try and hold uh, both pharmaceutical companies and um, and doctors, prescribers, to account for this, and we're seeing states again taking a lead on this. Um, but one of the issues for opioids uh, addiction, people who are addicted, is that um, it's it's quite like heroin as a drug. I and mean, there's been a lot of reports of people uh, in eastern Tennessee and right up into Pennsylvania and then moving on to heroin, which can be very cheap in some areas, maybe $5 in some cases. And uh, so it really is becoming a, a big social issue in towns like Dandridge. And your next article in the series on irishtimes.com will be from Birmingham, Alabama, deeply conservative part of the United States, you know, the, the deep south. And I, I guess the caricature we might have there is that, and I, I emphasize the caricature, but of kind of redneck territory where you're most likely to mm. find the unthinking sort of knee-jerk support mm. for Donald Trump. Um, is that a caricature or what did you find there? Well, this is fascinating. I went through people I know in D.C. I ended up staying with a family actually just outside Birmingham, Alabama. Now, Birmingham is a fascinating place in terms of history. Um, there was a bomb there in the 60s and 16th Street Church where four black young girls were killed. And this was it was it was planted by white supremacists. And this was a huge turning point in the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King marched through Birmingham, Alabama. It was once the most segregated city in the United States. So it's got a very dark history. Um, but it's it's trying to to move away from that in a sense. I again met I met people for dinner. Um, some lawyers, uh, women. Um, I met one couple, um, so one partnership, uh, 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 two, two women in their early 40s, one black, one white, who are both lawyers. They own a law firm in Birmingham, had really amazing Southern food there. Um, and there's a real kind of growing uh, growing middle class, growing, growing, I suppose, less Republican, Democratic uh, voice in Birmingham. But still, I have to emphasize, it was not like Chattanooga. And there's a very Republican territory. I mean, these two girls grew up with, with segregation. With different with different schools um, different churches. I think that's a huge thing. But I spoke and I stayed with this family in Birmingham. They're big Republican voters. But this was fascinating. I spoke in depth for, for hours and kind of spent the day with um, a wo- woman called Kathy Kirkland and then a friend of hers joined us, Susan Stoffel. They are Republican voters and they described in depth why they voted for Trump. And it was extremely interesting. They were very articulate. Um, they spoke a lot uh, about how just a couple of things, the immigration and the borders, that was a big issue for them. Uh, Kathy is originally from Texas, and she believed that she said, look, no country has open borders. We need to sort this out. We're, we're not against immigration. We're just against unvetted immigration. And again, they talked a lot about uh, Trump as a businessman. They liked him. They admired him. They said neither of them supported him initially. You're seeing that a lot with Republicans around the country. But they, uh, Kathy was more in favour of John, John Kasich, but she, she rode behind uh, Trump once he was nominated as a Republican candidate. But what was the overwhelming thing about both these women was their absolute disdain for Hillary Clinton. I'm picking that up a lot. And uh, they repeatedly said that they felt that she was only 
after the presidency for her own ambition that she didn't have the interest of the country at heart. They like, again again, I'm hearing people saying they like the fact that Donald Trump has is a businessman and that he's not beholden to anyone. They say, you know, he did enough money, he didn't need to run, he's doing this because he wants to challenge, because he wants to make America great again, that it's not because he's being, he's got special interests. So uh, that was quite quite interesting. And then the other point they... And just, uh, yeah, I was, sorry, yeah. as two sort of, mm. what I'm intrigued by um, articulate, intelligent American mm. women, were, are they not offended by Donald Trump? Well, I asked them this and they, they said, I said, what about some of his... And, and these women are very religious as well, church-going um, Christians. And I said, are you not offended? And they all, uh, nearly everyone I've said, Trump supporter has batted that off, said, oh, he look, he speaks his mind and he needs to kind of rein it in. But... Um, they both said they both brought up Bill Clinton and said, um, well, Bill Clinton um, was much worse what he did, his actions, whereas with with Trump's kind of locker room talk uh, and uh, they see no contradiction between uh, his language and their Christian beliefs in particular. I, and I should stress that they're both religion is a big part. It's the further I go south, the amount of churches that are everywhere, people are very church going. Um, and they believe, um, Kathy actually told me about some of the pastors in the area who were asking people to pray for the right outcome in the election. And she said to me, look, when he was elected, it was like a miracle that people felt that it was a miracle that they were the silent majority. Uh, and I think there was a real sense uh, that they felt, again, I'm picking this up a lot, that the media and the narrative was completely missing their point of view during the election campaign that they were completely uh, sidelined, that there's a caricature of Republicans. Uh, Cathy pointed out that she feels that when media outlets do cover Trump supporters, they pick the most kind of extreme Trump supporters, very poor people who are not that articulate, um, who you know are from these rural areas of Tennessee and, and Pennsylvania. And she was saying, no, there's millions and millions of people like me who vote for very, you know, very you know, very proper reasons. And she says that this is never uh, taken account by the media. So I think there's a real sense of partisanship. They talked about the silent majority and how they knew that he was, they were praying that he was going to come through and he did. Um, so I was impressed in terms of, I mean, I was impressed in terms of their rationale for Trump a lot of the time, um, that they just felt that the Republican idea of lower taxes, of higher national security is a big priority. That's the way they live their life. And they want a Republican candidate, whoever that might be, um, to to support that. I asked, did they, oh, did, would, did they ever um, support Democrats? Kathy said John F. Kennedy was the only one um, she liked. She said that Richard Nixon she did not like, but, but more or less they've always supported uh, Republican candidates um, throughout their lives. And have you found anywhere, Suzanne, in your travels, any evidence of, of uh, buyer remorse, anybody who has who supported Trump and regrets doing so? To be honest, no, not one person so far, but maybe I just haven't met them yet. And the only people who would be negative, obviously, are Democratic voters um, who who are scathing about Trump. And I have no problem people telling me what they think of him and he's an embarrassment. Um, but no, the people the people who voted for him, by and large, are still happy. I mean, they are saying it's early days, and I suppose that's the point, he's only six months in. And of course, um, there's, been no, there's been no change to healthcare so far, for example, that could uh, affect uh, the working class communities in particular, where it's not going to affect the private, uh, the, the, the richer Republican voters. They're delighted that Obamacare is going to be changed and getting back to the way it was. Um, but no, so far, no, they're very, very proud of Trump. So I'm finding actually 
Um, and I've done these kind of stories around other places in the world and, and say in the UK during Brexit where people are more reluctant to talk. Trump voters here are very, very proud of it. They want to talk. They feel that they have not been represented. They feel that, you know, the balance has been all wrong, that, that 63 million people voted for him and people are not trying to understand why they voted for him. Um, and so I'm finding people are very, very open about talking about Trump. And they're kind of, they know I'm going to ask about his offensive comments, but they just seem to back that off and say, look, he speaks, he shoots from the hip. Um, but they like the fact that he's direct, that he doesn't talk like a politician. I'm getting that a lot. That he, he just says what he thinks because they feel he'll stand up and do the right thing. And he's not beholden to special interest groups, that he's not politically correct. That's another issue that came up a lot, that America has become too politically correct. And at least Trump will say what he thinks. And they just like that he's that new kind of politician who's not worried about um, political correctness, about etiquette and about the political system. And he's, he's approaching this as a businessman and in a very, very new way. They like that about him. And ha- have, has it surprised you what you found on the, on the road so far? Um, are you finding, is this kind of the picture you were expecting or is it, does it look a lot different outside um, Washington? I think it does. I um, am finding, and some of the piece I'm going to write in the next few days about, you know, the race issue is everywhere in America, um, and it underpins so much in American history. Uh, and and then on, then by def, you know, it then underlies the 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 voting patterns of a lot of people. At the end of the day, most Republicans or a lot of Republicans are white, and a lot of uh, black people vote Democrat. And I, so I think that partisanship. Um, is seeping through the country. Um, but I do think uh, the media has a huge role to play in America. And in a way, somebody said to me uh, quite casually, but they made a point, they actually like, people like talking to journalists, they like the media. There's, there's a real culture of the media here. People watch a lot of TV and they, they read a lot on the internet. And there's such a partisanship in the media as well as politics here. People either watch Fox News or they watch a more left-wing um, channel like CNN or MSNBC and that defines their viewpoint. The lack of a, of a national broadcaster, if you like, completely changes the dynamic of political debate in this country because you've got people becoming more and more polarised. Um, some of the Republicans said to me, uh, which, was, which was a good point, I suppose, they said, look, we didn't like Obama, but we didn't moan about it. We accepted the results when that happened. And they, they again and again, they've said, you know, people have to accept this result. That's our democracy. We voted for him. And, you know, people have to give him the dignity of the office. Of course, I said, well, he's not exactly leading this with much dignity. But they again, they said, look, that's the way he is, et cetera, et cetera. But um, there is that sense that they feel a lot of Republicans feel put upon and that they have maybe that discourse on, on the Internet and on TV um, caricatures them. OK, well, Suzanne, it's proving a really insightful and interesting series. Where's your next stop? Um, well, I'm going to be writing next about Mississippi, which is fascinating, which um, a very poor state, huge, again, racial. I mean, there's just the cotton plantations were here, um, but it's, again, a bit divided. You've got the University of Oxford on one side, but I went to a school there that's essentially segregated. Um, so I'm going to be writing about that soon. I spoke to students in that school. That was fascinating. Um, and then I'm going probably across to, to then my next piece will be in Arkansas, Memphis, um, and then um, finally next week I'll be down in Dallas and finally then up in the northern parts of the country, which would be very, very different. Uh, so, again, I think the division between north and south is huge. People see themselves as southerners here. And, and that's a big part of identity of a lot of Republicans in the south uh, of the country as well. Well, Suzanne, best of luck and safe travelling. And uh, we look forward to your next dispatches. Great. Thank you. Bye bye. You can continue to follow Suzanne's series of articles on irishtimes.com. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.